Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. I thought after the speech that I shared as the first podcast for this week's Torah portion that I'd have only a few small thoughts to share this time around. Then I went back to my notes and I saw how very wrong I was. So I'm going to go through this Parsha in almost a linear way, trying to capture the shifts and changes that occur in this momentous reading as I do. I'm going to skip, for the most part, the sin of the calf itself. That I discussed, as I mentioned in the speech that I delivered earlier this week. If you want to listen to it, um, it was an important speech for me. It was a speech I gave uh, the week prior to the death of my mother. I do want to start, though, with the broad shift that occurs in this reading and kind of capture it to give you a framework as we step through the individual portions. At the beginning of this Parsha, we start off with a reality in which our feelings are controlled and placed within the general national framework, one defined by God. We don't offer incense, which represents emotion, until everything else is ready, and we are warned not to offer strange incense. Then we commit the sin of the calf and the sin of collective self-worship, and in order to save us from condemnation, Moshe shifts our relationship with God. We are intended to be a people whose testament to our Shem's redemption would serve as evidence of God's working in this world, but when we ascribe that redemption to ourselves, that framework disappeared. We're no longer able to testify to God rescuing us from Egypt when we say we rescued ourselves from Egypt. So Moshe transforms us from being a people whose treatment by God would be a testament to his presence. Sorry, Moshe transforms us to being a people whose treatment by God would itself be a testament to God's presence. If we are blessed when we serve Hashem or being redeemed, then we will be a witness to God's presence. And if we are cursed when we fail to serve, then we will still be a witness to God's presence. With this shift, we acquire national blessings and curses. The whole idea of cursing the nation didn't exist before this reading. It was only vaguely hinted at with the mistreatment of the widow and the orphan. With this shift, the nature of our relationship changes in other ways. No longer is it distant, controlled, and firmly within the divine framework. Now we, led by Moshe, have to take the first step. The Mishkan we build after the sin of the calf is thus a very different structure than the one that was designed by Hashem before the sin of the calf. Yes, physically it's similar, but the underpinnings of it are quite distinct. Let's step into the individual readings. The completion of the Mishkan's design is realized with the uniform donations and their textual connection to three items, wash basins, scents, and oils. The Kohanim wash their hands to eliminate outside influences on their actions, their hands, and will uh, represented by their feet prior to service. The articles used for this preparation must themselves be free of those influence, and so the money for them must be commanded without any personal influence or input. This is the reality of a divinely driven service. The scent seemed to build a meta-mishkan of smell, a tent of meeting. The emotional connection of the tent of meeting is so fundamental that sight and hearing are insufficient. We need smell, the sense most able directly to directly touch our emotions. But the smell and its emotions must be national, not personal, and thus they're built on the uniform donations. Finally, the oils fuel the menorah's fire, the representation of divine energy. But they aren't our oils, they're these oils that are national in their character and divinely commanded. With these three items, the community become like Kohanim, filling a timeless role as members of the Brit, rather than acting as individuals. With the building of the Mishkan, it is time for the people to be accounted for on their own merits, or reckoned. This is what was promised in Yosef's dreams. We would go out and have our heads lifted up before our king. Being reckoned, the word is pakad in Hebrew, is dangerous. On close inspection, people might deserve reward, or they might deserve punishment. After all, despite Yosef's hope that the people would earn the exodus, they didn't. 
They were Zohar. They were rescued because of a contract with Hashem, in which he had to honor because he made it with Avraham. They were not, the word used was not pakad. They were not rescued because of their own merits. With a uniform contribution, they stand together in service to Hashem. Just as gold represents divinity, silver represents the human reflection of the divine. When we are counted by our silver half shekels, our divine souls are counted, the half of our souls that are divine. But our human distinctions are not reduced to simple numbers. So the risk of being reckoned is mitigated. Our divine souls, pure and holy, are what is counted. The word kapar, for atonement, means a cover or a seal putting our divine selves forward and having those parts of us be counted seals away our more human failings. I'll add a quick few notes to the Egel and the punishment that's related to it from what I talked about in the speech earlier in the week. If you want to know why I think it was a national self, a case of national self-worship, listen to the other episode. I do want to mention though that the act of self-worship had warning signs prior to the reading. The people say in the Song of the Sea, Azivazimatya, our strength in the song of our Lord are responsible for bringing us out of Egypt. They ascribe some aspect of their redemption to themselves. Then two readings later, they bring build pillars, one for each tribe. This suggests some great honor for the tribes, almost a divine honor. And then they cast the blood of first offerings, the first offerings that are brought for the first and last time on the people and the altar alike. They make themselves a symbolic equivalent of Hashem. The Egil Masecha, the molten calf, does not come from out of nowhere. When the time for reaction comes, Moshe crushes the Egel. The gold that represents his divinity is ground up, and something weird happens. He casts it onto the face of the water. It seems that the gold doesn't sink into the water. How can this be when gold, I think, is 13 times the weight of water? Perhaps this happens because the only water in the desert is the water from the rock, the waters of Torah. Even though gold is heavier than water, it floats. The waters of the Torah, the waters of Hashem, cannot accept the Egel. When the people drink this gold, which represents their collective divinity, they are converting what was spiritual. It may not have been from a Kadosh Baruch Hu, but it was spiritual into something physical. Most of the Torah deals with making the physical spiritual, but this is a rare example of the inverse occurring. In the negotiations that occur immediately afterwards, we see some very strange actions by Moshe. Moshe is pushing first for Hashem's accompaniment, which wasn't promised earlier. Hashem says, my face will go with you, and Moshe responds, it better. Why is he pushing so hard just after the people committed a massive sin? I think Moshe recognizes why the people were so distraught when Moshe himself didn't come back down the mountain. They felt frightened and out of control, and with Hashem's distance, the feeling grows. Hashem is beyond understanding. There's nothing to touch. There's nothing to feel. There's nothing to smell. The people had nothing to hold on to. We'll get to how Moshe provides them something to hold on to in a second. But before we do that, I want to mention that Moshe's goal here is to protect the people above all else. Woven into his initial demands is a phrase repeated three times in very close succession, or something very close to that, if I find favor in your eyes. It is a common term of phrase used to refer to grace from humans and God alike, but never this common. Here, Moshe distinguishes himself by sharing his chen, his divine capital, with an undeserving people. This is a sign of Moshe's great leadership. He sacrifices himself here for the people. But he spends that political or divine capital on two demands. First, he has to know Hashem's ways. He has to have something more concrete to share with the people, and he needs to strengthen his ability to witness for Hashem. 
Our own definitions limit Hashem. So Moshe asks Hashem to define himself. And second, he needs Hashem to stay with the people. They need Hashem himself there so that they can feel what they cannot understand. They can know what they cannot understand. Blase Pascal, a famous mathematician, spoke about how do you have faith in God? How do you know God? And among other things, he was a rabid anti-Semite, but he said some very interesting things. And one of his defenses of God was he would, he would say to people, do you love your father? And when they say, yes, I love my father, assuming, of course, that they did, then, uh, then Pascal would say, okay, prove it. This idea of being able to feel this connection to God is why you want to have God in the camp and bringing the people to the land. So if the people don't have this feeling, they don't have this connection, there's something to hold on to, this love to feel, this whatever it happens to be, then they can never be redeemed. So Hashem responds to this request by telling Moshe, you will see all my goodness, which is his back. If we go back to Bereshit, goodness follows Hashem's acts of creation. He makes and then he declares that it's good. When Hashem reveals his goodness to Moshe, he hides himself with his hand, the body part that represents action and execution. When he's doing them, Hashem's own actions hide his presence. But once the actions are removed, once that veil is removed, we can see and Moshe can see where Hashem has been and the goodness that he has done. Moshe is seeing the total actualization of Hashem's creativity in this world, the past. It is not Hashem's face that he sees, simply that which comes behind him. I think if we are to be Hashem's people, we must leave a trail of goodness in our wake as well. What Moshe can't see, what no man can see, is where Hashem is going. We can see the derech, the road, traveled, but not the derech ahead. Hashem is, I will be what I will be. It is beyond definition. Knowing what Hashem will be is outside human purview. There are many possible reasons for this. One that appeals to me is the idea that with free will, there might just be infinite futures, all of which somehow fit within the divine plan. A man could be destroyed by that perception. Just imagine Moses' situation. He rescued the Jewish people by arguing with God. But what if, as suggested later on, Hashem's plan was to have him argue the whole time? How do you reconcile the time travel style paradoxes that emerge? I don't think you can. Hashem commands Moshe next to carve the next set of luchot, the tablets. It is not a downgrade. Moshe has contributed to Torah, which is recognized in the final partial of the Torah itself, with the phrase Torah Tziva Lanu Moshe, the Torah which Moshe commanded us. It is, however, a foreshadowing of what is to come, this carving. The Luchot are not simply handed down by God now. We humans must play a role in establishing it. Moshe provides the physical context for the Luchot, while, at least at this point, Hashem is to provide the words. In standing up for the people and then carving the Luchot and taking the first steps towards rebuilding the relationship with God so soon after breaking them, Moshe exhibits a remarkable recovery from anger. He demonstrates something fundamentally godly. I believe this is why Hashem lets him, and through him us, see something of his face, al-panav, his face. Hashem, Hashem, kel rachum v'chanun, is not just a list of 13 attributes of God. They are the face of God. They were forward-looking. After all, you can't have thousands of generations of kindness prior to thousands of generations of people at that point in time in the Torah. 
Hashem Hashem Kerachim V'chanun is not just a passing wake of divine goodness. We don't literally see God, but we know Him as never before. In a way, Hashem's presence in the world, in this world, is a presence of actions represented by His good and of values represented by these attributes. As a distinct nation, we should not only admire these attributes, we should make them part of ourselves. How might these apply today? I read these verses as Hashem Hashem in timeless and total words. God of motherly mercy, Rahum also means womb, and grace, slow in anger, abundance in kindness and truth, keeps faithful to a covenant, Nutzar, of kindness for thousands of generations, lifts Naseh, the weight of sin, Avon, and violations, Pesha, and destructiveness, Chet, and cleanse the perfect sense of Nakeh, but not cleansing the future, the imperfect sense of Nakeh reckons the sins of fathers upon sons and sons of sons on the third and fourth generation. The lesson for us? Practice motherly mercy and grace. Be slow in anger. Be abundant in kindness and truth. Keep faithful to Hashem's covenant of kindness. Lift the weight of sin, violations, and destructiveness from our world. Cleanse the past, but do not absolve those who would sully the future. And reckon even great sins, such as the Shoah, on those three and four generations on but do not bear those grievances forever. Imagine what it would be if mankind adopted these precepts, particularly mankind in our neighborhood. As a quick aside, this concept of kindness to the thousandth generation, but hatred only to the third or fourth, offers a solution to another conundrum. In Devarim, the Torah says that the forefathers loved Hashem. They got a breach or covenant as a result. This breach results in a long-term promise of kindness, but in the intervening time, the Jewish people rebel. For this we suffer terribly for three or four generations. It is our challenge to rejoin the long-term track. As another quick aside, I was listening to a podcast this week, the Ancient World Podcast, that focused on the ancient Jewish kingdom of Yemen, at least for one episode. The history is fascinating. Although the podcaster isn't an expert in Judaism, uh, (laughs) he gets some things particularly wrong. Nonetheless, the persecution of Christians in this Yemenite kingdom uh, was was carried out in retaliation to Roman Christian persecution of Jews. And the persecution of Christians that occurred here, which were against people who, who weren't themselves uh, a challenge, leads to the destruction of the Jewish kingdom by the Christian kingdom of Aksum. It's all very convoluted. Nonetheless, I bring it up because when the Yemenite kingdom converted to Judaism, they began to make dedications to Rahman. That was the name of Hashem they used. Kindness. Back to our Parsha. Even after the 13 attributes, Moshe pushes again, forgive our iniquity and our sin, and nachalat us. What is nachal, and why does it trigger an actual breach, an actual covenant, rather than just Hashem's promise? As I talked about in the other podcast, it is variously translated as a possession, inheritance, valley, or stream. These notes create an image of a stream flowing through and cutting out a valley, defining it, unifying it, making it distinct, and in a way possessing it. It is that river's valley and the valley is created by the river, and the river is created by the valley. To inherit in this way is to flow, and thus to create a space which becomes designated for you. This is how we are to inherit the land. We become Hashem's nachal by virtue of Torah and His forgiveness flowing through us and defining us in the valley of Torah. But we also define the world we touch, bringing Hashem's presence with us. Moshe points out that our valley will be stronger and more secure on nachal because... The word is key. We are stiff-necked people. 
This requires more than a promise. For Hashem to designate us in this way, we must do ourselves and designate ourselves. This requires a public breach in front of all the nation. My brother is fond of pointing out that we are, Hashem threatens to destroy us because we are stiff-necked people. And then he, threat, then he says he's going to make a breach and protect us because we are stiff-necked people. Our fundamental attributes don't change. But despite that, the role we play can. So there's another breach. Hashem makes the people distinct. He carves them from their neighbors. This is the reality of Nachal. Then we have a list of laws that serve to distinguish us as Hashem's people. The first set instruct us to distinguish ourselves. The second set to recognize the role and gifts of Hashem. And the last to protect the divine cycle and the separation of loss from potential and realization. All of these laws fall into the category of Goy Kadosh, a holy nation. Hashem's river of holy law distinguishes us and makes us into his valley, inheritance, and possession. Let's dive into a little more detail. How do we distinguish ourselves from our neighbors so we can be a testament to Hashem? It starts with not worshipping ourselves, a new prohibition against Masecha, which is directly connected to acknowledging the Exodus and the distinction made for our firstborn versus Egypt's. We must keep Shabbat. We must dedicate our physical production from our land to our spiritual connection. And finally, we must protect the cycle of physical and spiritual realization. We must not combine the spiritual realization of an offering's blood with leavening. Leavening represents Hashem's gifts to us. It does not represent our dedication of ourselves. It does not represent the movement of the physical to the spiritual. We must not allow the Pesach meat to decay. We must not shortchange the spiritual by providing second-tier or late physical produce. And we must not mix the creative potential of milk with the destruction of potential reflected in the animal's death. The prohibition of Masecha has, for the first time, been added to the list of inappropriate worships. This is perhaps a reaction to the Egel. Hashem seems to be saying, not only shouldn't you make other gods, but you shouldn't worship your own peoplehood. I can't believe I needed to tell you that. Other nations, though, do seem to worship themselves. It seems to be the norm. They either think that their leaders are gods, as in Egypt, or they think that gods are simply there to be manipulated for national ends, as in Midian. Our relationship is to be fundamentally different. We have one more odd commandment. We are commanded to axe a donkey's neck if it is not redeemed. This seems like the waste of a working animal. Plus, this mitzvah was covered before. The key is in the choice of a donkey instead of, for example, a horse and the manner of death, axing the neck. The firstborn are tied back to the death of the firstborn in Egypt. The survival of our firstborn is a testament to this miracle and our connection to Hashem. When we redeem the firstborn, we recognize this connection and Hashem's bringing us out of Egypt. The Jewish people are almost destroyed because we are stiff-necked. Then we are rescued because we are stiff-necked. Our attribute of being stiff-necked is why we are still around today despite everything that the world has thrown at us. So what animal is most stiff-necked? The stubborn donkey. If we redeem it, then all is good. But if we fail to do so, then its neck should be axed. Our stiff neck might as well be broken if it is not used in the service of Hashem. I believe this command is brought up here for a second time because it is relevant in a new and even more powerful way. The final aliyah seems strangely technical. Why mention that Moshe didn't eat or drink? And why mention the procedure of the veil covering in such detail? Well, Moshe spent his own spiritual capital standing up for his people, and that actually made his spiritual capital grow. It enabled him to see Hashem's back. It enabled him to participate in the making of the tablets, but it also distanced him from the sinful people. 
Through his growth, Moshe has been insulated from all the people, no eating or drinking, and specifically from the Jewish people, who can't even look at his spiritual greatness without fear for their own inadequacy. It is a divide that needs to be overcome for the idea of the Nachal to become real. With the design of the Mishkan and the previous Parshiot is a testament to our prior relationship, our actual building of the Mishkan and the subtle differences that we see in that building will serve as the tool that enable this new relationship to flourish. In the fifth reading, Hashem says he will inscribe the tablets, but here Moshe does it. From the simple text, it seems that there are different words on these tablets, words of the covenant of distinction rather than ten sayings, Aserati brought. The role of building the divine relationship falls increasingly, increasingly on us, and the action of building that relationship is what makes us distinct. Before I leave, I want to talk about one more thing, the concept of comfort. In Shemot 32, 14, Hashem reconsidered the evil he had said he would do to his people. The word for reconsidered is Nachem. It normally translates as comfort. It actually occurs multiple times in relation to God with this sort of translation. For example, just prior to the flood, Hashem did Nachem that he had made man on the earth and agreed into his heart. And just a little bit later, Hashem says, I will blot out man because it Nachems me that I have made them. Please excuse my anglicized grammar. It's the only way for me to bring the words into English this way. If we use the word as comfort, it seems to make little sense. Here we'd read, And the Lord comforted on the evil that he had said he would do to the nation. In Bereshit we'd read, And Hashem comforted because he had made man on the land and agreed him to his heart. And I will blot out because it comforts me that I have made them. How do you square these translations? How does reconsideration or regret combine with comfort? The Torah uses this word at least four times to describe God seemingly changing his mind. But in the middle parable of Bilam, it explicitly says that Hashem does not do this. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should necham himself. When he has said, will he not do it? And when he has spoken, will he not make it good? The key to understanding all of this comes from that same parable. It says that Yaakov does not have iniquity, and so the Lord is with him. Because of the lack of iniquity, Hashem doesn't change his own mind, and he doesn't necham. But with iniquity, Hashem can necham. We can cause this change, which is why immediately afterwards the Moabites move on to encouraging sexual deviance. It is their manipulative way of getting Hashem to necham and thus punish the people. Remember, they are divine manipulators. There is actually a beautiful and entirely made-up form of Avodah Zarah that can square these meanings, this idea of comfort and reconsideration. In his pantheon, J.R.R. Tolkien has a goddess of mourning. And what does she do? She turns sadness into wisdom. Using this idea, Nachem is an acquisition of a new perspective in the face of disappointment and loss. The connection is explicit in the story of the flood, and Hashem Nachem, because he had made man on the land and agreed him to his heart. The heart is our source of our animation. Allegorically, it is the same to God. When we are distressed, when we are overcome, we seize up. Exhaustion is a common sign of depression. Our change of heart is a sign of comfort. We get reanimated. We can reflexively change our own hearts. Esav does so by keeping in mind his plan to kill Yaakov. Or others can relieve that which is striking in our hearts. Think of Yitzchak being comforted about the loss of his mother. This is true comfort. It's deeper than just feeling better. It is understanding a path of action in response to a disappointing or tragic reality. 
It is also the kind of comfort that can lead to the flooding of the land. It seems like Hashem can nachem in order to sustain morality and moral consistency. So when Moshe asks Hashem to reconsider, he is asking him to go to a state of agitation and regret. He is asking Hashem to channel the anger and disappointment and sadness into remembering to support the greater divine mission. While there are later clear indications that this was always Hashem's plan, Moshe's very request is a demonstration of Moshe's fundamental and deep wisdom. With that, I think I'll bring this episode to a close. As always, feel free to share any of the ideas. No attribution is needed. Shabbat Shalom, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.